you know, hey, I was out and I got an alert on my phone that someone had turned or opened my laptop. And one of the settings in the app is you can then take a photo or picture to see who's at your laptop. And he's like, it turns out it was my mom. She was snooping on my laptop. Welcome to the third Verona Security Tools podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Patrick Wardle from Objective-C, who's going to tell us about his security tools for macOS systems that keep people safe by detecting threats that haven't even been found potentially by other researchers in a number of really clever ways. Patrick, uh, thank you for joining us today. Aloha, Cody. Thank you for having me on the program. Uh, really stoked to be chatting, talking nerdy about macOS security topics. So when I do security content, there's always somebody in the comments that is trolling and saying that people who use macOS aren't serious about security. Hackers don't really use macOS. And I usually use Objective-C as my one link rebuttal to that argument. Can you tell me why you've made macOS security such a mission and why you've created these tools that aren't really available, uh, even for for a good amount of money for the most case, for macOS users? Yeah, so first, just to touch on the point you make, there's still uh, a large percentage of the population uh, that might believe that Mac OS OS systems are essentially unhackable or are not affected by uh, computer viruses, Trojans, or other pieces of malware. And there's a few reasons for this. Uh, You know, I think generally speaking, uh, Windows platforms have been a lot more targeted than Mac OS systems. Uh, So it's just, you know, more common for people to hear about infections targeting or affecting Windows platforms versus the Mac OS uh, ecosystem. Uh, Also, in years past, Apple's incredible marketing machine has really kind of pushed this message. Uh, You know, on on the front page of Apple.com a few years ago, uh, they had a claim essentially saying that uh, Apple Mac OS systems are not vulnerable to the thousands of Windows computers out there. And technically that's true because largely speaking, Windows uh, computer viruses cannot detect Mac OS because it's a different architecture, a different system. But a lot of people took that to mean that Macs are completely uh, virus free. So, uh, you know, when you say a lot of people respond to that and, and, and that's a, a very unfortunate uh, claim. And I think there's some downsides to that because uh, kind of leaves Mac users perhaps overconfident and more likely to actually click on perhaps uh, suspicious emails, download cracked applications. And basically, uh, I would say enact or, you know, act in ways that uh, might put them more at, at risk because they think that their systems are uh, secure. Uh, so now to answer your question, kind of how did Objective-C begin? How was it born? Kind of interesting story. Uh, I'm luckily uh, lucky enough to live on the lovely island of Maui in Hawaii, which means I love surfing and I have a lot of surfer friends. And now about five years ago, one of my surfer friends said, hey, Patrick, my Mac has been acting kind of funny. Can you come over and take a look? And I said, you know, sure. So stopped by his house and started poking around. And it turns out his computer was infected with a variety of adware, which is actually fairly common. And that's really what the average Mac user is likely going to be infected with. Adware is becoming ever more prolific and and uh, successful, I would say, at targeting the Mac, Mac platform. Anyway, so I said, how do I clean this system? And up to then, I had done most of my security research and malware analysis and research on Windows systems. And I knew, for example, on the Window platform, there were tools such as the free sysinternals tools that you could run and they would give you diagnostic information or show you, for example, what was persistently installing on your system. So 
there's a system turnovers tool called AutoRuns. It showed you everything that was set to be automatically started by the operating system. This is what I mean when I say persistence. And the majority of malwares don't do persist. So the great thing about this system turnovers tools, again, for Windows, is you simply ran it, it would show you what was automatically going to be launched. And then you could peruse through that list, which usually only had a handful of items, and very quickly uncover uh, the malware infection without having to do like a full scan, uh, you know, looking for signatures or hashes. So wait, just to back up, like instead of looking for the malware the traditional way where, you know, in a Windows system, you would take the program that's suspicious and scan it and check the hash. You were just looking for a behavior that's associated with malware. Yeah. And we'll probably check, talk about this a little more in, in the podcast, but that's really the fundamental concept of the Objective-C tools. In a nutshell, it's looking for malicious behaviors versus specific signatures or hashes. And the analogy I liked that I think describes this well is, so every winter, flu season comes around, you have to go back and get a new flu shot. And this is because the flu virus basically evolves or modifies itself. So the previous flu shot is ineffective, essentially. And computer viruses do exactly the same. However, if you get the flu any given year, you essentially know that you have the flu, right? You get headaches, aches, pain, you know, take any disease, you might not know exactly what is affecting you. But you know, if you're like bleeding out of your eyes, you're going to know something's wrong <laughs> with you, and you should, you should go to the doctor. So to take that analogy to detecting computer viruses or malware, it's like we almost don't care about the specifics of the the malware, you know, what family it belongs to, or what exactly the type of, but if it's performing malicious actions, for example, if it's ransomware and encrypting all your files, uh, or it's something that's trying to spy on you and turn on your webcam in the background, that's a suspicious action that we can uh, target on without actually knowing about the threat. So anyways, back to my friend who was probably perusing adult sites and got AdWord on his Mac computer. <laughs> I said, cool, let me just run auto runs. Uh, there's got to be a Mac version of this and we'll quickly detect this AdWord, remove it from the system and you'll be good to go. Uh, unfortunately though, there wasn't a sufficient uh, version essentially or tool that would simply enumerate uh, persistently installed software on, on Mac OS, which to me was really surprising because Macs even, you know, five years ago were fairly popular and adware and computer viruses were starting to really target them. So I went home and I put together a little Python script, uh, named it knock knock and all knock knock did and still does is enumerate persistently installed software on your system. So on Mac OS, there's maybe, 5, 10, 15 different locations in the operating system where legitimate or illegitimate malicious software can install itself persistently. So knock, knock, the script would just go to those locations programmatically and then display the list. So I took that tool back to my friend's computer, uh, re-ran it, and sure enough, it found a variety of adware, uh, the persistent components. And then that allowed me to very quickly uh, detect and delete those uh, pieces of adware on his system. So that was kind of the inspiration, realizing that there was all these great Windows tools, but there really wasn't parity on the Mac OS platform. Um, so that was kind of the, I would say, the defining moment that really inspired uh, Objective-C and these Mac security tools to be born. Wow. And another thing that I think might have pieced things together for you that other people might not understand is, I know you can't t talk too much about your previous work, but the way that vulnerabilities work nowadays is when you have a vulnerability for macOS, not everybody is in the 
business of turning that in and making sure that everyone's computer is made more secure. A lot of time, if someone discovers it, it can be turned into someone who wants to use it as a way to get into that computer. And then depending on their motivations, that vulnerability might not be turned in for a very long time. So people's computers can be vulnerable to these sorts of problems and basically have a zero-day vulnerability that isn't really available yet. Nobody understands that this is a problem. And still, those malicious behaviors, once a computer is detected, can still sort of be identified, even though we're not sure how they got in, if if that's kind of what uh, you're saying. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I really like to tech- talk a lot about behavioral-based detections and write tools that kind of hone in on that. Because as you mentioned, Cody, and that's a really good point, uh, there is a large number of black hat hackers or uh, government agencies that are looking for ways to hack computers. And when they find ways in, obviously, they don't go tell the vendor. They use those to uh, further their agenda, whatever that may be. Uh, And as you mentioned, though, if we're looking for malicious behaviors or activities, even though we might not be able to detect the zero-day exploit, if the payload then goes to persist or perform some action like turning on the mic to try to turn the laptop, which is now infected, into an audio capture device, the tools can detect this. And we've actually seen instances of this where brand new malware that exploited zero-day vulnerabilities were detected by these Objective-C tools, even though the tools had no a priori knowledge of the malware. Uh, Again, because they're simply looking for the malicious behaviors versus the specific implementation details of these attacks. So the last time I actually talked about Objective-C was with a bunch of journalists when I was doing a training in Norway, talking about the ways that they could keep their computers secure while they traveled to places like Russia. And that's actually one of the first places I, I saw you when you did your presentation while in Russia that talked about the various ways that a reporter could actually get hacked. So it was really interesting and cool to be able to directly to these people's faces, explain to them specific use cases of how they might be compromised and walk them through uh, a step-by-step case of, of how that happened. Could you uh, just talk a little bit about a little bit about that presentation and how somebody like a journalist might not do anything wrong, really, and still end up being hacked? Yeah, Cody, that's an excellent question. And I'm really happy to hear you talking to journalists because I believe more and more they are really becoming targets. I mean, we kind of live in this politically charged environment and, you know, based on various political rants, et cetera, et cetera, you can see that governments oftentimes have a very high interest in perhaps figuring out whistleblowers or the identities of journalist sources. And one of the best ways to do this is to essentially hack the journalist and then, you know, gain access to their devices. If you think about it, our phones, our laptops, we can, we have so much private and personal information, and especially journalists probably have a ton of sensitive information that they would really like to keep uh, secure. And the, the bad guys or the governments who have, you know, other agendas are, again, essentially really actively targeting a lot of journalists. So my goal is not to freak out journalists, but I think it's the responsible thing to do for them to realize that they are uh, likely targets, especially perhaps when they travel to uh, countries that may not have quite as a positive view as journalism as you know maybe some Western democracies. Now, that having been said, I think there are, as you mentioned, a few things that journalists can do. And we'll talk to those briefly uh, after we've talked about 
kind of how they can get hacked. And as you mentioned, one of the first times we chatted, or I think maybe we kind of interacted or you saw some of my research was, uh, I was actually in Russia at a cybersecurity conference talking about malware, some Russian malware, which was kind of interesting. And while we were there, Vice News was there covering the conference and doing an episode on Russian hacking. They basically approached uh, myself and one of my coworkers at the time and said, if you could hack our producer, we will put you on HBO. And I said, you know, <laughs> what are the rules? And they said, no rules. And I was like, say no more. Uh, I'm in. Now, we didn't have a lot of time to prepare, so we used some basic attacks, but these basic attacks still can work fairly well. So one of the things we did uh, was we basically set up a rogue or a fake Wi-Fi network that was more powerful than the Wi-Fi network in the hotel. Uh, and then the journalist uh, connected to that Wi-Fi network with the ability now to kind of see the traffic, at least some of the traffic that wasn't uh, encrypted, we could influence uh, some of the data that was going between uh, the producer's computer and the internet because coming through our rogue Wi-Fi network uh, kind of allowed us to man in the middle a lot of the content. Uh, so at that point, we could do things like inject pop-ups, perhaps try to uh, coerce them to download some software. Um, so that was one way that the attack can be pulled off. So it's always good. And actually, just to explain like how insidious this is, the way that most computers work is if the if Patrick was to pop up a, an evil access point that has the same name as the hotel's Wi-Fi network, but his has a stronger signal, your computer will just automatically connect to his and not even give you the choice to make a mistake. So you can be connecting to what looks like a legitimate access point and your computer thinks it's an extended service set. It's just part of the hotel's network. And because it thinks it's just another repeater on that network, it'll just go ahead and join. So you're not really doing anything wrong. It's not like you're picking a suspicious network. You're actually just logging into what looks like the hotel's network. Yeah. So this is definitely something that's uh, a very powerful attack. And we'll talk about some ways to uh, mitigate against this. Other common attack scenarios that can be kind of purely remote, meaning you don't have to be at a hotel in Russia, involve things like phishing emails that will have malicious attachments. So we see a lot of hackers and governments uh, utilize this approach. They basically will send an email with a spoofed address and an attachment that will look legit. And then the attachment may be a malicious application or some other file that perhaps exploits a vulnerability. Uh, recently on macOS, there was an issue affecting Microsoft Excel. Uh, and if you opened an Excel document with no alerts, no pop-up, uh, code would be running on your system, even on a fully patched Mac Whoa. system, fully patched version of Microsoft Excel. So one of the things, and we'll talk about this more, is just really be careful who you're open, opening uh, emails and documents from. Other good recommendations or way people can get hacked is uh, by cracked or pirated software. You know, people say don't download pirated software, and there's obviously ethical reasons why you might not want to do that. But the fact is what hackers will very commonly do is they will crack a popular application, for example, Photoshop or something that usually costs a lot of money, and then they will inject or add some malware or Trojan to that. Distribute now the cracked free version of Photoshop, which is great, but the problem is you will also get this malicious piece of software that gets installed in, in the system. So, you know, it's really, in a way, easy to get hacked, but it's also hard if you're performing the, uh, you know, various steps or taking actions, just performing, I would say, kind of best security practices. Uh, some of those are, you know, don't open emails from untrusted sources, don't download cracked or pirated applications. 
Also, if you're running the latest version of Mac OS, there's generally a lot of really good baked in security mechanisms that Apple adds to new versions of their operating system. So Mac OS is getting harder and harder to hack. So if you're running the latest version, this is going to at least raise the bar for the adversary and make it more difficult uh, to hack. Hmm. So do you want to go back to the journalism use case? Uh, in I think we were at the malicious AP. Okay. Yeah. So once we were able to, once the journalist connected to our access point, we were able to inject a pop-up on their system, which basically said, hey, you're traveling abroad. You should be using a VPN per company policy. Uh, and, you know, here's a link to the VPN. Please download and run it. Uh, of course, when they click that, we didn't actually provide a legitimate VPN application. We provided some malware that gained access to the system. Uh, another interesting thing that we were able to do, because we weren't sure if that attack was going to be successful, is when the uh, journalist connected to our, our Wi-Fi access point, we spoofed a login page that represented or replicated exactly what the hotel asked, specifically the room number and the last name. And with that information, the journalist entered that, we were able to go to the hotel front desk and say that we needed a key to the room. And since we knew the room number and the last name, they gave us a key, no questions asked, no ID checks, uh, nothing. How typical is that for a hotel? Was this like a, a budget hotel or was this like a, a nicer like hotel that has like actual real security? That's a great question, Cody, because the funny thing was, this was a very locked down, very secure, physically secure hotel. So when you went through, you actually had to walk through a metal detector. And then there were security guards at the check-in counters at the elevators. So from a physical security point of view, it seemed like the most secure or one of the most secure hotels that I've been to. However, again, what hotels do is a lot of times they use the room number and the last name as almost an authentication code. I mean, you've, I'm sure, you know, been eating dinner at a fancy hotel and they basically said, do you want to pay or do you just want to put this to your room? And if you have a room number and the last name, no question asked, they will, you know, build that dinner. Similarly, if you go to the front desk and say, hey, I've lost the key, you know, what room are you in? And you know the room number and last name. Or you say, hey, this is my coworker staying there. Uh, we added an extra wrinkle because we actually had called the front desk first via a spoofed number. And the journalist who was a woman, we used my coworker's uh, lovely wife to call <laughs> and say, hey, uh, you know, a gentleman named Patrick is going to be coming down shortly. Please give, me, give him uh, a key to my room. So when I showed up, they were expecting me. And the fact that I knew the room number and the last name of the journalist, which we captured from the Wi-Fi attack, uh, again, they gave me the room card, no questions asked. So obviously there's some serious physical security issues as well. I mean, you imagine you're a <laughs> female journalist traveling abroad and hotels are just handing out room keys to random strangers. That is not good. Right. Anyways, what we did is we waited till she was out to dinner and then we, using the legitimate key card, gave access to her room. Uh, we installed some hidden cameras across from her safe so we could see when she typed her password, uh, her pin code. Her laptop, though, was just kind of sitting out. And with physical access to a device such as a laptop, very easy to gain access to that. So with that physical access, we actually manually logged in and manually installed a backdoor as well, uh, not knowing if our remote attack was going to succeed. So we wanted to kind of hedge our bets and make sure that one of the two attacks would succeed so that essentially we would then have remote access to this infected system. So that's another thing to be aware of if you're traveling with your devices. If you're going to a country... Let's pick on Russia because, you know, they are 
fairly well known for performing various uh, offensive cyber activities, let's say. It's really good to always have your devices in your possession, uh, you know, not leave them in the hotel room because it's very easy to hack a device once you have physical access. Phone is a lot harder, but a laptop, pretty much game over. Um, you know, you can do things like set a firmware password, which makes it a lot harder to do, but the average user is probably not going to set that um, that password. The other thing is if you are traveling to these countries, it's probably a better idea to actually bring a burner device. And a burner device is just a laptop or a phone that you take with you that has no personal information on it and is essentially just used for the purpose of that trip. Then, you know, as you go through customs and they hack your device or, you know, you leave it in your hotel room or you connect to a rogue Wi-Fi network, okay, that device might be owned, but you're not giving away all your secrets and, and private information. Uh, so when I travel to these countries, I generally travel with burner devices. But, you know, Russia is an interesting case, uh, kind of a, a funny story that leads back to one of the Objective-C tools. I was in Moscow and I decided it would be a great idea to go on a Tinder date. So <laughs> I'm on a <laughs> Tinder date and I remember this uh, Russian woman who spoke impeccable English you know, we were talking about what they did. Turns out she works for the Russian government. And I was like, man. Wow. Big surprise. Yeah, big, su <laughs> big surprise. And I kind of suspected that, which I think is why. Uh, well, anyways. Um, but long story short, <laughs> I remember my laptop was left in my hotel room. Because, you know, who's going to bring a laptop on a Tinder date, right? Anyways, I remember at dinner kind of being suspicious of this of this woman, uh, rightfully so, as it turned out, and thinking, you know, either she's kind of buttering me up, building this, you know, relationship, which is one aspect, uh, you know, that the Russians often do, or while I'm out to dinner, my laptop is just getting completely owned, completely hacked. And I would have no indication uh, knowing that's going on. So when I returned from that trip, I was talking to uh, the Grug, who's a prolific security researcher, and he kind of had this idea that related really well to this uh, situation. And he said, hey, Patrick, it would be really great if you designed a simple tool that would generate an alert anytime someone opens your laptop. That way you can be out to dinner, and if an attacker comes along and breaks into your hotel room and tries to hack your laptop, obviously the first thing they have to do is open your laptop. And I said, yeah, that's a really good point. And actually, that's very something that's very easy to detect. Uh, so one of my utilities is called Do Not Disturb. And it was definitely inspired by this experience in Russia with this Tinder date with this, you know, beautiful Russian uh, operative. And, <laughs> <laughs> and all it does is essentially will alert you. Uh, I can send an alert to your phone or log something locally anytime someone opens uh, your laptop. Uh, so that's kind of neat. That would have been a really awkward moment on that date. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm still hoping, like, you know, since I haven't installed, I haven't been any other, you know, Russian Tinder dates. Um, but it is funny. I have gotten a few uh, DMs from uh, some of the users, some of my friends. And one in particular said, you know, hey, I was out and I got an alert on my phone that someone had turned or opened my laptop. And one of the settings in the app is you can then take a photo or picture to see who's at your laptop. And he's like, it turns out it was my mom. She was snooping. <laughs> Stupid <laughs> on my laptop. They got to his mom. No, that's terrible. So I wonder what her price yeah, was. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another kind of interesting thing about the Objective C tools because they're basically looking for these behaviors. And so a lot of times they can also detect uh, legitimate applications doing suspicious things, or your mom 
snooping around. So one of my <laughs> other applications is called Do Not Disturb Oversight, and it alerts you when your mic or your webcam is activated. Now, obviously, when you are FaceTiming or using Skype, uh, it will detect and alert, and you can basically say, okay, I trust this application, that's fine. But the idea is if some malware in the background infects your system and turns on the microphone or the webcam, it will detect and alert this as well. And there's been scenarios, for example, there was a really rather unfortunate situation with a piece of malware called Fruitfly, which for over 10 years had been infecting Mac computers completely undetected. And what the malware author would do is he would wait until the users would were not on their Macs, not on their computers, and then he would turn on the webcam, the goal of spying on the victims, you know, kind of like Black Mirror episode kind of thing. And it was interesting because the LED indicator light would come on, but since the people were not physically sitting in front of their computers, they would not actually likely see that, right? Their laptop was in their bedroom and they were just, you know, walking around naked or something. Anyway, so what Oversight will do, though, is, you know, imagine that scenario happen. When you come back to your computer, there'll be a big pop-up basically saying, hey, just to let you know, this application that's running in the background turned on the webcam while you weren't at your computer. That's obviously a very suspicious event. However, another thing that's kind of interesting, we've actually uncovered legitimate applications turning on the mic uh, in uh, scenarios where maybe they should. Uh, the most popular was Shazam. Uh, Shazam obviously <laughs> turns on the mic to detect, uh, to listen to songs and then identify the author or the band of the song. Uh, but it was interesting because on the macOS version of the application, once you you know, stopped using the application, it would actually keep listening uh, to Ew. the audio. Exactly. And Oversight detected this. And it was funny. I got an email from a user basically saying, hey, I think Sajam's always listening. Like, is, is this the case? And I thought maybe there was a bug in my code. But no, I reverse engineered Shazam and I found out this was the case. So I emailed them and basically said, hey, you know, I, I turned the slider to off, you know, in the app. I turn it off, but it's, it's still listening. What gives? And they said, oh, yeah, this, this is the feature. So the next time wow. you ask us what song is playing, we can tell you right away because we've already been listening. And I was just Ew. like, that is messed up. So they're like, yeah, it's, it's, well, it's this a feature, is, right? <laughs> this is also kind of a, a unique thing with macOS because there's. I remember from one of your security presentations that you can't just turn on the webcam and not get the light to turn on. It's it's baked into the firmware. It's too much work usually for attackers exactly. to go around that. But the microphone is a totally different case. And you can usually get more valuable information from the microphone than the webcam anyway. I mean, like at a certain point, you've, you've kind of maxed out what you can see if the computer is not moving. So, I mean, with the microphone, though, you can listen in on conversations, like hear phone calls and do all this other stuff. And on Mac OS, without any sort of modification, there's no indication that, you know, you're actually being listened to as, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, no, I believe the most recent versions that, that has the touchpad, there might be an, an indication, but I, I still agree with you at 100% that especially cyber espionage type malware, government type malware is going to be way more interested. I mean, if you turn on my webcam, you're going to see me like picking my nose, petting my dog, like <laughs> boring stuff, right? Whereas, yeah, you turn on the, uh, you know, you turn on the microphone, you know, I have calls or chat with perhaps Apple security teams talking about zero days. It's very interesting information. You can imagine a journalist making a phone call, you know, or you can imagine just an office uh, or a political venue, right? If you can hack into the system and turn on the microphone, you now have an audio capture device and perhaps a very sensitive 
uh, location. So I, I would agree. I think the webcam, you know, other than like pervy hackers who want to spy on people, and there are some <laughs> of those, but I would argue they're few and far between and caught readily because the light comes on. Uh, the mic is way more, I think, of a privacy and, and probably more commonly targeted. And, we, and we've seen malware do exactly this, where it would turn on the microphone knowing it can't be detected. Good news is Catalina now has uh, some prompts. So when you go to access the mic or the webcam, there's actually a pop-up or an alert asking for confirmation. But without going into specifics, that's something that's pretty easy to sidestep. So sophisticated hackers are really not going to uh, have much problem with that obstacle. So again, I think it's really wise to have these third-party security tools, especially free open source ones, that can simply let you know. And that's kind of the play on the idea of the objective C. It allows you objectively to see what's going on in your system and basically then allow you to make the decision about uh, what behaviors and activities you're allowed or you're you know, comfortable with. Hmm. And that kind of visibility isn't typical with macOS because most users kind of don't know what's going on beneath the hood. So just as an example, when I was doing the, the training in Norway, I, did, I worked with two different groups of journalists, and I have a shout out to the Business Today people at uh, dn.no. They are fantastic. They go to Syria. They win awards for investigative journalism. And like some of what they were asking me was, you know, we are people that are, are going to Syria that are having our computers taken away by customs for sometimes like, you know, 45 minutes. Is like, what do we do with this thing when we get back? Like, how do we have any visibility into what's happening with this? And I was really happy that, at least for the Mac OS users, there was a lot of tools available for them to be able to start getting into whether or not it was, well, for one, it's probably just not safe to use that <laughs> computer again. But at least be sure about it while they're on their assignment, like, you know, being able to have at least some sort of hope uh, of understanding whether someone's opened their computer or is activating their microphone, where otherwise they would just not have that information to make smart choices. Yeah, and that's a good point. And I don't really fault Apple on this a lot because Apple has to balance usability and security security. And generally, those are not on the same side of the coin. I wouldn't say they're in conflict, but, you know, the goal or the beauty of Mac OS and Mac systems, and this is why I think a lot of us are passionate Mac users, is generally they just work, right? It's great. Like coming from Windows, I would always had to install drivers and configure stuff. Mac, generally, you power it on, you're good to go. So what Apple does is they really want to make an experience that is beneficial to the user, right? Not a lot of alerts and prompts and stuff they have to click through which is great. The downside, though, is you don't have a lot of insight into what is going on. Again, this is by design because that takes away from that usability experience. But for, I would say, high-risk individuals, for example, journalists who are traveling, uh, you know, people that work, uh, you know, maybe defense contractors uh, or political uh, people, you know, I think having more insight into what's going on on their Mac is great. And it's interesting you, you talked about the Norway because there was this interesting piece of malware about, let's say about five years ago, that actually the it was uncovered, I believe, at the Oslo Peace Forum or some similar related conference in Norway because there was a security researcher at this event and it was talking with one of their participants and it was kind of looking and digging around in their computer and actually found this malware that had infected their computer and was remotely taking screenshots and exfiltrating really sensitive information. So I think this really just drives home the fact that these journalists are going to be targeted. I mean, if you put on your evil black hat or you think in terms of, you know, a government who has perhaps a certain agenda, you know, ethics aside, 
makes complete sense that these malicious governments or you know other entities are going to be targeting uh, journalists and, and other Mac users. So I think you know again, if you're traveling and you're going through customs, you basically have to assume if they have your laptop, they're going to be you know maybe dumping sensitive information or installing an implant or a backdoor. So again, having that burner device, I'd say is the best idea because that way it almost doesn't matter. And then the second best is, you know, even for that burner device, ins uh, install some of these security tools, you know, set a firmware password. Really, you just want to make things that raise the bar, make it more difficult for these attackers to gain access to your system. And then if they do, perhaps, you know, as I mentioned, install the software or other such tools that will likely detect the malicious uh, behavior. When the implant, for example, connects out to the network, if you have a firewall, that might detect it. If you have something like oversight, it can let you know if the mic or the camera is being used to spy on you. Um, so really there's no downside, especially if you're, I would say, a, a user who's perhaps in these more sensitive situations and more likely to be uh, targeted by advanced adversaries. Yeah, and for chief information security officers, for business people that are higher up that might use macOS computers or have other people that they're interfacing with using macOS computers that are sharing data. I, I agree that these tools are going to be really, really helpful. But also for the average user that, I mean, l let's take an example like WannaCry, where that's a, a nation state tool that gets leaked that somebody attaches a bunch of malware to and then lets free. There was no real way for people, I mean, aside from updating their systems, of course, but there was no real way for people to prepare for that. They just, the average person wa that was running, you know, something that happened to be vulnerable to this vulnerability that nobody knew about at the time was able to be hit indiscriminately. So things like ransomware, uh, your tool that protects against these sort of attacks that might just, you might have a zero day leak that nobody is able to defend you against. And then if you're able to detect a sort of type of attack that might be more widespread, not against a targeted user, like a journalist, but maybe the average person that just happens to be vulnerable because they haven't, you know, had an internet connection to update their Mac in a while or something like that. Uh, those are ways where your tools also don't just target high value uh, targeted individuals where the adversary is going to spend a bunch of effort. They also kind of apply to the everyday person that might just download risky application or pirate some software maybe occasionally and be at risk of, of having like a ransomware infection that goes on to you know target the entire network that they're connected to Yeah, and cause some real damage. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So far, we've kind of been focusing on targeted attacks. The targeted attacks are you know going after journalists, uh, CEOs the hackers or the attackers are specifically going after either a very small part of the organization or a specific individual. And those attacks are a lot more sophisticated and unfortunately often succeed. That having been said, the average Mac user, I would say is still not impervious to attacks because on the other side of the coin, you have hackers that are motivated by financial goals. Uh, and these cyber criminals, as you mentioned, are basically indiscriminately targeting users. So they'll create some attack, maybe the Trojan version of Photoshop we talked about earlier, or perhaps even have some zero day. Again, the goal is though, just infect as many Mac users as they can indiscriminately. So in that case, in some scenarios, the Mac user perhaps doesn't even have to be doing anything wrong. We've seen instances where hackers have infected uh, legitimate third-party developer websites and then infected the applications on there. When the users go to download what they think is legitimate software from the legitimate developer site, they unfortunately become infected because of this supply chain type of uh, attack. So again, it's really, 
I think, important to have tools. Uh, you mentioned the one or ransomware. It's ransom, W-H-E-R-E, kind of a interesting name there. Um, but its goal is to basically monitor the file system and detect the rapid creation of encrypted files by an untrusted process. And then regardless of the way the ransomware gets on the system, either a zero-day exploit, a pirated application, you know, one of these supply chain attacks, if ransomware starts executing, very quickly the tool can detect that files are being encrypted and then block and suspend that process and alert the user. Now, a few files will be lost because it's slightly uh, reactive, but the power of using this technique is it can generically detect all publicly known versions of, of ransomware and likely ones that come out in uh, the future as well. Because again, it's focusing on the behavior and that behavior is, hey, something is encrypting all my files, which is not something usual to happen. Um, so again, that's, I think, a great example of a behavior-based heuristic that we can uh, trigger on and generically detect even threats that we don't know about yet. Right. And aside from automated attacks as well, we also have examples of low-skill attackers who are either buying, for example, one thing that I know some people are really passionate about is like stalkerware or domestic abuse that's enabled by kind of spying tools that are installed by a domestic partner or an employer or something like that on someone's computer without their permission. And I really like that some of your tools are able to detect these sorts of spying or otherwise really intrusive things that enable abuse and, and can really, especially in situations where there's a, a power dynamic at play, really be malicious if they're not detected on someone's system. Yeah, and that's really one of the inspirations for making the tools both uh, largely open source and 100% free, right? No strings attached, there's no user tracking, there's no ads, there's no limited functionality. I, I'm a passionate believer that for end users, security products should be free because like you just mentioned, there are situations where if the security of the system is compromised, this can have real life impacts. We mentioned a uh, fruit fly that was trying to spy on its victims. Uh, and unfortunately, a large number of these victims were children. So you can imagine the psychological impact to both the children and the parents that is, uh, you know, because a hacker was able to infect the system and then and spy uh, spy on them uh, rather indiscriminately. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So like, it just bugs me that again for end users that you know it's like okay, you can protect your computer, but you have to pay us nine ninety nine a month or something. And I'm just like, I mean, you know, I understand there's business cases. Um, you know, in the enterprise, I think that's a totally different scenario. You know, I work for a company that creates uh, enterprise security tools. Obviously, those I think should be paid for. But for the average end user, I am passionate about making these tools uh, 100% free and largely open source uh, so that, you know, hopefully we remain more secure and remain unimpacted by, you know, these sick individuals who are trying to, you know, spy on kids via webcam or via, you know, as you mentioned, abusive uh, partners and relationships that are trying to uh, you know, spy on, on spouses or, or, or partners. Um, so, you know, I think that's something that's really important to me. And so I, I really, I really like that these tools are free versus, you know, trying to make money off preventing those kind of horrible uh, activities. Yeah. And also, if you need any justification for downloading any of Patrick's tools, the sheer number of samples of malware on Objective-C 
is staggering. Like I didn't know how many different types and flavors of bad programs there were <laughs> for macOS until I really looked at uh, the kind of research that you do. And if for those who want to stay informed on this sort of thing, Patrick has an amazing just email that goes out every time he does a new blog post on taking apart some macOS malware. And it's always just fascinating to see how creative attackers are with a uh, obfuscating what they're doing and making it really difficult to analyze. So, I mean, there's uh, there's a lot going on in macOS security research if you're interested. And Patrick has a lot of resources. But for people that are just brand new to this, the I guess the average user and not our more advanced use case, for the tools you have available on Objective-C, can you give us like a maybe a checkup that the average user could go through in order to make sure that there's nothing that's pre-installed on their system and then maybe in the future be able to detect it uh, if something were to start uh, doing something bad? Yeah, that's a great question. And I just got to kind of reiterate what you briefly said about analyzing the malware and then the, the collection I have on my site. So I'm also a firm believer that in order to understand what the bad guys uh, and girls are up to, um, that it's really important to continue to stay uh, abreast of the situation. So uh, as Cody mentioned, whenever a new piece of Mac malware is uh, uncovered, I generally like to write an in-depth blog describing how I take it apart to kind of uh, offer it as a learning situation or a case study, uh, but then also to, uh, for myself, to really understand how this malware is working so that I can understand what hackers and uh, you know these uh, malicious adversaries are doing uh, to ensure that my tools can still provide protection or if they're doing something you know brand new, some new hacker technique, you know, hey, maybe this is an inspiration for a new tool. So yeah, I think it's really important to, you know, kind of, you know, both write security tools and then also analyze the offensive or malware creations and exploits in order to really have a, a solid understanding of what the uh, attackers and hackers are up to. Have there been many tools that have been uh, directly inspired by capabilities you see in malware? Um, I would say all of them, honestly. And it's interesting, we touched on this at the beginning. So I used to work for the National Security Agency. I was a hacker for the U.S. government. And some of the research I did was on malware that was targeting U.S. government networks. So from that, I got a really good foundational understanding of what advanced adversaries are creating and how they functioned. And then also, I helped in some, let's say, offensive cyber operations, which I think gave me some unique insight into how advanced adversaries also perform attacks. So you're thinking about how to stop yourself. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I, it's kind of neat. I, I think that I really have this unique viewpoint where I kind of have sat on both sides of these attacks or, you know, of cybersecurity, uh, where I, I understand how the offensive adversaries work. Uh, and then because I write these uh, security tools, I also then can provide uh, tools that hopefully detect or prevent some of these attacks. So to answer your question, though, yes, all these tools are either inspired by <laughs> Tinder dates in Russia or, uh, you know, malware uh, or attacks where, you know, for example, ransomware wasn't really a thing like, you know, five years ago or, you know, or commonly. So as we saw an uptick in that, looking at ransomware attacks and saying, okay, what is the commonality of these? Okay, they encrypt all your files. Okay, that's something we should fairly easily be able to detect and thwart generically. Okay, let's write a new tool that does that. So I think that's one of the reasons why I like to continually stay on top of, uh, you know, new malware that's coming out, new exploits, uh, just to see that, you know, are they continuing tools uh, good enough? Are they still sufficient? Because hackers are always evolving. Or is it time to, you know, uh, you know, hey, is there something they're doing that's really neat that I haven't thought of? 
and then build that into uh, an existing tool or improve that. Uh, but it's been kind of cool. Like one of my more popular tools, Block Block, detects persistence. And uh, essentially every public version uh, of Mac Mauer that has come out since that tool that persists, Block Block can detect that. Again, because it's just generically looking for persistence. So if the malware is going to persist, uh, Block Block is going to like alert and say, hey, just to let you know, you know, there's something going on. So that's kind of the power of these heuristics and the behavioral detections. They can have a really good track record, even against new threats that haven't come out yet. But to answer your question, what should the average user do? I think there's some really good steps they can take. And we've touched on some of them already. First and foremost, always run the latest version of macOS. Apple does an incredible job building in new security mechanisms baked into the operating system with each new version. And a lot of times they don't backport those to older versions. So if you're running an older version out of the box, it's just going to be less secure. Uh, so by running the latest version, you kind of have all these built-in security protections, which can thwart a lot of the attacks because Apple's doing the same kind of thing. They're looking what the attackers and the hackers are doing, and they're figuring out ways that they can harden their operating system against these attacks. So for iOS, macOS, it's always a really, really good idea to run the latest version because a lot of malware and attacks we see only actually work against older versions, which means if you've updated your system out of the box, you are set. Another good thing is it's always good to use unique passwords. Uh, what a lot of hackers, the ones that are more financially motivated, they're more interested in, in money. So they might try to hack your system and you know get your password to your, your bank account, or they might try to directly hack uh, one of your other accounts. And if you then use the same password, they will then use that to you know siphon off a lot of money. So again, if you use unique, strong passwords, that just makes hackers' jobs uh, way more difficult. And then I do think it's really good to install, you know, some third-party security tools. Uh, you know, I think antivirus products are great and still have their place. They will detect a lot of the known samples and actually do a pretty good job of detecting new ones once the AV companies have had some time to process and release new signatures. So, you know, I'm a fan of, uh, you know, AV products. And there's some that are targeted specifically to uh, macOS. Malwarebytes is one great example, um, a few kind of others. Then some of my tools I think are great. Uh, one of my favorites is just Oversight, the one we talked about, alerts when the mic or the webcam goes on. That to me is really uh, one of the most popular tools because I think that generally has protects against maybe the more insidious or problematic attacks, right? If someone like hacks into your bank account, steals some money, like that's annoying, but your bank will refund it, right? But if a piece of malware is like spying on you via the webcam or capturing your private conversations via the mic, like that might be something that's a little more difficult to recover from, especially emotionally or psychologically. Um, so that's kind of one of my favorite tools. Uh, Block Block, as I mentioned, another great tool that will alert you when software persists. Uh, again, it doesn't differentiate between malware uh, and goodware by design. So if you're installing a legitimate piece of software and it, it, that you've gotten from a trusted source and there's a alert saying, hey, just to let you know this installed, you know, perhaps an auto updater that's going to run every time it's logged in. Yeah, that's fine. Like Google Chrome does that. That's That's okay. But if you open a Word document, and then you get this alert saying, hey, you know, this this new piece of software was persistently installed, and all you did was open that Word document. That's perhaps an indication. <laughs> very <of> suspicious. Uh, <laughs> very <laughs> suspicious. So, yes. So, I do like to caveat that the majority of my tools, again, by design, look for behaviors that may be suspicious. For example, the mic or the webcam coming on. But it's important to reiterate that legitimate software can also trigger these alerts. As we mentioned, FaceTime, Skype, right? You're going to use 
the webcam and, and the mic. Uh, and but, sometimes yeah, I also notice that certain updaters will be encrypting or decrypting updates, uh, and that can trigger ransomware sometimes. Exactly. So AV products, for example, download a lot of encrypted signature updates, um, you know, have kind of whitelisted a lot of the well-known ones. But it is important to know that we err on the side of caution and perhaps have a false positive versus a false, a false negative. A false negative being missing something uh, that we should kind of uh, detect. Uh, whereas a false positive is like, okay, we alert that, uh, you know, some updaters encrypting files. Yeah, that's really what it's doing, but it's not malicious or ransomware per se. Okay, so one thing I, I don't want to forget about is rekey, just because keyloggers are one of the kind of like classic things you think about when someone like gets a hold of your computer, like the ability to see all of your keystrokes, see all your passwords, like password managers have made that a little bit less of a threat. But I really like the fact that also for the average person who might just be afraid of getting a USB rubber ducky stuck in their computer while they're using the restroom, rekey is a, a really cool way of making sure that there's nothing persistently listening on your keyboard. Yeah, so again, keyloggers, as Cody mentioned, a very popular attack. Hackers are obviously trying to capture uh, your passwords, credit card information as you type and enter this, or perhaps you know see who you're typing to, what you're saying. Um, so utility, he mentioned what it does is it looks for a specific type of keylogger and it can generically detect that. So regardless of how the malware was written, uh, if it uses the most common type of uh, keylogger, uh, Ricky will actually pop up and alert you of that. So again, that's one of the other tools that's kind of neat. Uh, it's just the idea is generic keylogger detection. Um, and again, that's kind of a problematic uh, attack. So I think it's really kind of an important thing uh, to protect against. Um, so yeah, that's one of the other popular tools uh, that I think provides kind of some nice protection uh, very simply kind of uh, once you download and run, just runs in the background and We'll just alert you if it detects any. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, some of these are a little bit more advanced for the the average user. You know, like, for example, I think uh, Lulu, sometimes like people might not understand like what a certain request means and uh, an installation where a bunch of stuff is popping up and asking for uh, requests can be pretty confusing. But I mean, the fact that it also goes ahead and checks for virus total results and, and does these other steps to try to make it more friendly with kind of the Mac user in mind. Probably the biggest difference between this and some other security tools I've seen is all these tools have great user experience and great UIs for just being able to very simply access the functionality they provide. So for the average business user, like you don't need to be like an IT person or a hacker or even a nerd to really use these tools. You just need to, you know, be able to you work with an interface, be able to determine, huh, should this like Word document be able to be, you know, connecting back to a remote server and like installing a persistent process? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so like a lot of these, uh, a lot of these tweaks to like making the, secu the security tools kind of almost Mac branded where it's like, you know, it's it's a kind of tool you would expect to find on a Mac. It just works. You open it, it runs, and it displays the information in a way that's easy to understand is kind of the difference between your security tools and the kind of uh, other, like, hacked-together things don't inspire a lot of confidence sometimes in, in the people who are forced to use them when there's not a Windows equivalent. Yeah, and that's true. And, and, and this isn't to take away from some of those other tools because oftentimes they're written by very brilliant security researchers, but a lot of times they won't maybe put as much time and effort into the user experiencing into the UI. So, you know, you're left with perhaps maybe only a command line version or something that is not very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, so I'm a big, big proponent of actually creating security tools that are also hopefully uh, easy to use. And as you mentioned, kind of fit into uh, the Mac 
uh, experience and align with kind of the, you know, Mac OS because, you know, you don't want to detract to get from that because Apple has done a really incredible job. And that's also, I think, why a lot of people use Mac, uh, Mac computers. So, yeah, the goal, again, of these tools is not to be too invasive, but provide enough information without overwhelming the user. Well, we're coming up on our time, but if people wanted to stay up to date with your security tools, Mac security in general, or maybe if they just happen to be in Hawaii and uh, are around the right time of year, uh, can you let us know what the best way to keep up with your work is? Yeah, so I try to be pretty active on social media. So my Twitter handle is uh, Patrick Wardle, that's W-A-R-D-L-E. So that's a great way. My DMs are open. Uh, if you go to objectivec.com, that's objective-see.com. Uh, there's also email if you want to contact. The other thing I'd like to mention very briefly, well, two things is, uh, as I mentioned, all the tools are free, uh, open source. A lot of users who find them useful uh, support me via my Patreon page, which is incredible uh, because what that allows me to do is take more time to basically uh, create uh, more of these tools. So a lot of people, you know, a dollar a month, great kind of all adds up and has really made a lot of impact in kind of giving me more time and resources to develop more free open source tools. Um, so anyone who's listening, who's an existing Patreon, uh, thank you so much. Uh, and if you know you check out the tools and you think they're neat, you know, check out my Patreon page and uh, I'd be stoked if you would support. Uh, finally, and just to kind of wrap this up, you mentioned uh, Hawaii. We are organizing a uh, Mac security conference, actually the third version. Uh, it's called Objective by the Sea. Uh, and this was kind of another, in retrospect, idea that's obvious. Uh, we basically said, one of my friends uh, said, hey, Patrick, like, you should do a Mac security conference. And I was like, wait, there's got to be a Mac security conference. And there wasn't. So, you know, at every big cybersecurity conference, there's always a few Mac talks, uh, which is great. But I would find myself going to these conferences three or four days and go to maybe one talk a day because the other ones weren't just relevant to my field of expertise. Uh, So what we do is we've created this uh, Mac security conference. It's in Hawaii or international. The first version was here and then we did it overseas in Europe and then coming back here. Uh, So in March, we're going to have a third version of the Objective by the Sea Mac security conference. And it's amazing because we are lucky enough to attract the top speakers, uh, Mac security experts in the world. Uh, it's also really well attended by a lot of industry. Apple sends a lot of people, you know, to be involved in the security scene. And actually, if you are a patron of Objective C, the conference is free to attend. Obviously, if you can't make it all the way to Hawaii, I realize it's you know expensive to get here, far away. We also live stream the conference. Uh, and again, if you're a patron, a supporter of Objective C, that's free to view the live streams. We also record all the videos and upload them. It's also free to, you know, journalists uh, from the press, uh, students. Again, the goal, just like the tools from Objective-C, is not to approach this as a money-making venture, but really to just have an opportunity where passionate Mac security researchers, passionate Mac users, students, journalism, journalists can get together in a, a space uh, and really network, coordinate, uh, teach each other, learn. Because uh, again, I'm very passionate about uh, security and not really, you know, using that as a way to make money off people. Uh, that just rubs me the wrong way for for the end user. So again, the goal of the conference is really this uh, community focused. And, and and so that's kind of really excited. So if you're interested in that, uh, go to objectivebythec.com. Or again, there's a link on objectivec.com or it's all over Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, but you know, if you work for, for a company that, you know, has a training budget, why not use it to come to Hawaii? 
<laughs> oh my god i hope to see everyone there i've been a patreon supporter for two years now i originally signed up because i used to have to write security articles all the time and i was always the first to know about big breaking mac os news by subscribing to patrick and supporting him on patreon so it has been very worthwhile and i encourage anybody who enjoys these tools and wants to see more of them to check them out download them try them and support patrick in making even more Ah, well thanks cody i really appreciate the continuing patreon support it really means a lot and i i really really appreciate it uh and as always it's it's been a pleasure i you know i as a security researcher can only do so much so you know talking to someone like yourself who uh you know is in the field of of media and dissemination of information it's hugely helpful uh to me uh, and i think to the larger mac audience uh in what you do in helping kind of uh, spread this information and and kind of act as a, almost liaison, I feel like, between Objective-C and the, the larger Mac security base. So I, I really appreciate that. No, well. trust me. As a fellow Mac user, you can't imagine how helpful it is to have someone as professional and well-versed in the kinds of adversarial techniques I'm, I'm likely to come up against making free security tools. It's really nice to not be alone out here when it comes to being a Mac OS security user. So... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Win-win. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, being on our third Verona Security Tools podcast. Make sure to check out Patrick's Security Tools. And if you want to see more content like this, you can check out the Verona Security blog. If you have any ideas for future and upcoming episodes, send me a message on Twitter at Cody Kinsey, and we will see you next time. Thanks.